calling us from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. We have Larry Forletta on the phone. Larry is a former Maryland State Police trooper and also a retired DEA agent. Larry, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Well, thanks for having me on today, Jay. I really appreciate it. Now that you're retired, what are you doing? Well, I uh, when I retired, which has been about 14 years ago, I started my own uh, private investigation business. Like, uh, who was the one I used to watch as a lot as a kid? Rockford was my favorite. Yeah, Rockford and a lot of other uh, mystery shows because that's not really what the guys do. <laughs> I, I was leading into that conversation to say, is your life all exciting like that? Driving around in Pontiac Firebirds and living in a trailer and duking it out with people? Yeah, that's yeah, that's the real good image that Hollywood gives, but uh, that's not the reality. And they they seem to butcher it so badly, not just with the, the private investigators, but also law enforcement, which we'll talk about. Before we get lost in that conversation, Larry, tell us about your private investigation where people get more information. Yeah, sure. My, uh, of course, like I said, I started my private investigation business about 14 years ago. Our primary clients are lawyers and law firms, and then we work with uh, corporations, businesses. Uh, local governments, and even uh, private citizens. So we do a variety of things, and we've worked, you know, a variety of different uh, investigations. And do you guys have a website or Facebook page? Yeah, I have. uh, My website is uh, www.fcisllc.com. Okay, and uh, I know you have a personal Facebook page. Do you have a Facebook page? Other social media for the private investigations? Yes, we do. We have, uh, and I don't know what the uh, what the actual uh, it, it would say for Lutta Investigative Security Consultant on Facebook. Uh, we're in Facebook and LinkedIn. Awesome. So I actually tried doing the investigation stuff, private investigation for attorneys when I first retired from police work, and I was doing a lot of post conviction appeal work, mm-hmm. and uh, I got to the point where I just couldn't stomach it. it and here's part of the thing. It wasn't an animosity thing like you see on television because police work didn't have a lot of animosity either. It got to the point where I would have people representing someone who's convicted who was dead to rights guilty and they'd be talking to me like I was a moron and I had to lie for them, which I could not do. I know that you've never encountered that and I know that's not something you would do as well. No, never. But that's that's what happens uh, nowadays and... A lot of misconceptions. We talked, starting off the conversation, about misconceptions regarding private investigators. There's also equally as many, if not more, I'd say probably more, uh, about law enforcement officers. And you had the distinct honor of working for Maryland State Police and then going in the federal. And both of those are totally misunderstood. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Tell us about your career with the state police, then how long you're in DEA. My uh, state police career started uh, way back when in the late 70s. I, I worked in uniform. I started out in uh, Frederick, Maryland. And then from there, I went into uh, narcotics. So I worked undercover all over the state, including in uh, beautiful Baltimore, which is one time place that I, I truly loved. I worked a lot with um, a lot of great investigators in the Baltimore City Police Department. Um, so it, it, it was a, uh, not only was it a great learning experience, but I made some really good friends, uh, and I've cherished that friendship 
uh, till today. I love Baltimore too. I used to love it a lot more than I do now. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 sad because really I get angry when you talk about the the downfall and the downward spiral of that city. Not that it was never; it was always a violent place. Yes. But there's some phenomenal people there. And those phenomenal people are leaving in droves. But we're going to leave that conversation alone for, because I don't want to get upset. Uh, So after doing the Maryland State Police thing, then you uh, started your career with the federal government, the DEA. Right. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, when I, um, again, like I said, I I worked for Maryland State Police for almost eight years, starting working narcotics. Uh, Some friends of mine had had moved over to go to the federal government, and uh, they convinced me that was the place to go, and I'm glad I did. I had a great career working for DEA, been all over the place, all over the country, and did some investigations overseas. So it uh, definitely was a uh, a very challenging uh, career. So you did was it 25 with the DEA? I did uh, 21 years with DEA. I started in uh, Washington D.C., uh, Baltimore, and then Pittsburgh was my last stop. We've had quite a few guests on who are retired DEA. We've had Jeffrey James Higgins on twice. We've had Derek Maltz on. We've had uh, Stephen Murphy and Javier Pena, who, by the way, uh, are the people who inspired the television series Narcos on Netflix, and, and now you. And I got to tell you, I was very fortunate in my career in Baltimore. I got detailed at DEA out of Baltimore and got to work with some great people. They were both feds, and they also had task force. They had a lot of people that were police from state police, county, city, like myself, and we handled everything from soup to nuts. Right. Well, you know, the one thing that that makes DEA unique, maybe as opposed to other federal law enforcement agencies, a vast majority of the DEA agents are former former local or state law enforcement uh, in the organization. And then we have military and lawyers and, and, and different other factions. But I, I think uh, a lot of the uh, local and state law enforcement officers uh, had made the bulk up of, of DEA. And uh, DEA was the probably the first federal law enforcement agency to create a task force uh, way back in the, in the 70s with the uh, New York Police Department, NYPD. And uh, basically that concept has really taken off since way back when. Uh, We were able to bring in the local law enforcement officers working side-by-side in task forces. Some of the task forces were even run by some of the locals and working under uh, DEA's umbrella. So our our mission was really to stop drug traffickers, and uh, we we, uh, have a great deal of respect for all the task force officers, that were actually uh, DEA task force officers, and along with all the local and state and other federal law enforcement agencies that we uh, that we work with. And uh, I think one thing that I found to be successful in my career is learning how to work with others and getting everybody on the same page. And I think uh, you become a lot more successful if you if you have that mindset. And that's one that you're absolutely right. The people I worked with, phenomenal. They're great at that. And they brought they, they had brought a great way of bringing the strengths of all these other people and mixing in to get what they needed. We were talking with Larry Forletta. Larry is a former Maryland State Police trooper and also retired DEA. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. 
want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Back to the Law Enforcement Show with our conversation with Larry Forletta. Larry is a former Maryland State Police trooper and also about eight years Maryland State Police and also a retired DEA agent. And we're going to do our best to cover as much as we can about both careers. I want to start with a conversation about being in the Maryland State Police. I was very lucky. I got to work with a lot of troopers. We had back in the 80s uh, a lot of camaraderie we teased each other a lot they they called us names we called them names but we always had each other's backs and they were some great great people what would you say would be the biggest misconception that people have about being part of the state police or state trooper well i i think one of the biggest misconceptions is thinking that uh, the maryland state police only did traffic enforcement that's probably one of the biggest fallacies that are out there because we have some uh, you know different criminal investigation divisions intelligence uh, narcotics and, and a whole slew of, of different missions that the state police have in, in Maryland I when I first joined uh, after graduating out of the State Police Academy and which is probably one of the toughest trainings I think I've ever went through in my life I was ready to leave after the first week is the uh, I belong to a uh, the state police uh, tactical unit, and our responsibility was to go wherever major problems existed, whether there was a prison disturbance or a riot in any locality. I was involved in one uh, issue in 1979 when uh, Baltimore had a major snowstorm, about over 30 inches of snow. The uh, Baltimore police were kind of stuck, you know, with their vehicles because back then there wasn't SUVs like there are today, and uh, they sent several hundred of us to back up Baltimore City Police in uh, Army National Guard Jeeps, um, and we were able to, to quell a disturbance within two days, but the only reason why we were able to do that is because we had support uh, from the political entities, in, in, in not only in Baltimore City, but in, uh, in the state of Maryland with the governor, uh, because what happened was uh, there was looting and rioting going on in downtown Baltimore, and uh, some of the criminal element decided to take advantage uh, and uh, literally clean out a lot of the minority-owned businesses. And so we quelled that disturbance in a couple of days. That, to me, was the way that was to, was to be done and should have been done, unlike uh, what we're seeing today. Totally different nowadays. This yes. mindset of let's give them space where they can destroy and vent their frustration and they'll burn themselves out is I get why they do it, Larry, but it doesn't work. And whole lots of innocent people get damaged and harmed. Yeah, it that that mindset will never work. You cannot sit back and let people destroy property, burn buildings, loot, attack other innocent people without doing something about it. And uh, the leadership in some of these major cities now, including Baltimore, are definitely weak. They weren't there when I was there in Baltimore. Mayor Schaefer uh, and and so many other uh, people that, uh, although they were liberal politicians, they still had a mindset of law and order. 
They did. Uh, they had a, a, a strong backbone, too, uh, yes. and a strong sense of right and wrong. Uh, you know, being a police, I was in Baltimore, uh, for those listening that don't know, I'm retired from there, and th- there's also a mindset with your police is that, look, whether you're brought in as backup, like you guys were, Larry, you're not there to tolerate bad behavior. And, you know, we didn't see conflict with anybody. We had a rule of thumb. You respect everyone until they change the tone of the conversation. Then there's no backing down. And when you have riot situations or looting situations and you ask police to sit there and do nothing about it, it violates their, their moral compass. Well, I, it, yeah, it, it not only does that, but it also gets them injured. Oh, in very the, much so. In, yeah. in the Freddie Gray case, I mean, those guys, they were throwing rocks and bricks at the police. And I, and I watched it with uh, disdain. I mean, it just broke my heart to see that nobody had the, the police uh, backing. And, and, and the things that they did to the police department there, I mean, actually, you know, throwing bricks and rocks at police, that's, you know, that's deadly force. And so, you know, watching things going around in Baltimore and around the country, you know, the average citizen, it doesn't matter your political persuasion, cannot even accept that type of behavior in any and, and i think all the communities for the most part uh agree with that concept i think you are spot on would the snowstorm and looting and rioting would you describe it as your toughest day in the msp msp or was there something else well you know the, the tough days are when law enforcement officers get killed uh and, and unfortunately had been to many funerals but there was a trooper that I worked with in Frederick, Maryland, uh, just a great guy. He became a pilot. And uh, as you know, we did all the, the medevacs in, in, in the state of Maryland. And uh, unfortunately, uh, this particular helicopter was not up to snuff, I guess. He had just did a medevac, took him to shock trauma in Baltimore, and was on flying back. He got caught in some type of storm. Uh, it crashed and he died along with the co-pilot died. That was one of the hardest uh, things that uh, you have to deal with in law enforcement is knowing one of your brothers or sisters were were lost tragically uh, on the job. I'm sure for you it's the same way when I hear and read stories of law enforcement today. By the way, go to letradioshow.com, find all kinds of news articles. We have articles about officers being killed. doesn't matter where they're at. I get very emotional, I get very upset, and it brings back memories of all those uh, line-of-duty deaths. And there are so many over the years, and some were people I was very close to, some were people I just worked on cases with, and some I didn't know, but didn't it didn't seem to lessen the impact. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, like I said, um, I, I've been to so many funerals, you know, there's not a dry eye that, you know, once you start hearing those bagpipes and, and everything just goes through your your body and then you look at the family and it's just, uh, it affects you. It really does affect you. It does. And by the way, I can't watch any videos of bagpipes and, and not get emotional, not get misty-eyed. And I, I want people to think I'm a tough guy, but the truth is things like that. And, and don't, don't play taps around me because yeah. I lose it. Uh, amazing grace on, on bagpipes I lose that as well yeah. um, and when we had line of duty death funerals in Baltimore we had so many people from Maryland State Police there we had people right. from all over the the world at times right. but the Maryland State Police really showed up uh, and they showed up it didn't matter 
one bit if they knew the people or not. Right. Well, that's a, that's an accepted brotherhood. Doesn't matter what color uniform you have on, um, because at the end of the day, we're all out there doing the same thing. Yeah, and the risks are just real. And by the way, I drive, and I'm on the highway. Doesn't matter. I've done it in Maryland. I've done it in Florida. If I see a, a trooper by themselves, and it looks like it's a, a hinky kind of car stop, I will stop, even at my ripe old age, and let them know that they're not alone. We take a short break. We'll be right back. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Back to our conversation with Larry Forletta. Larry is a former Maryland State Police trooper and also retired DEA agent. Now he's a private investigator. And that's that's a story in and of itself. Uh, I, I understand a little bit about the Maryland State Police. and I believe their, their academy was barrack style. Because uh, I actually looked at going there when I was young. And same with other state police. When I was on the job for a couple of years, I got offers for other state police departments and other police departments. I just couldn't think of doing the whole academy again. Then you had people like the DEA. And I believe their training facilities at Glencoe, Georgia, is that where it used to be? Yeah, they used to be uh, in Glencoe, Georgia. Um, actually, I was the last class in Glencoe, Georgia before they... They moved to uh, Quantico, Virginia. Gotcha. Uh, that had to be a bit of adjustment because you were already like a salty old trooper. And all of a sudden, now you're going to DEA. Was that uh, a live-in academy, so to speak? Oh, yeah. We had to live there, but uh, the conditions were a lot different. Uh, I would say that, to me, it was a vacation as opposed to when I went to the Maryland State Police Academy. You mean you didn't have like the drill instructor screaming at your, in your face? No, different mindset. Actually, we lived in townhouses. Uh, there would be like a group of us in the townhouse. I mean, we had maid service coming in, cleaning the, the room. Get out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Clean towels every day, three square mills, and we were good to go. And, uh, you know, that's the difference between uh, the federal government that has has a lot of money <laughs> and, and opposed to uh, some of the local and state organizations. When I was going to the academy in Baltimore, uh, of course, we didn't live at the academy. It was a, a day thing, uh, basically eight eight to five. But I lived in a little tiny townhouse apartment, a row house is better terminology, in uh, Pigtown, I think it's called. And my roommates were mice, rats, and cockroaches. And that's, and by the way, and lived off ramen noodles because I think we made $13,000 a year back then. Yeah, when I started... Uh with Maryland, just to back it up a little bit, I started out about $11,000. You are an old-timer. Yeah, so, yeah. I've and definitely yet, been around. Here we still are. So, uh, going into DEA, you, you went through their their academy, and a totally different mindset, totally different environment, and like you said, they had a lot more money. Absolutely. The training uh, that we received and for our specific field was top-notch. The instructors... Uh, the personnel there, the uh, things that I've learned. I mean, I was—I thought I was salty, uh, a salty trained dog from the Maryland State Police, but uh, they actually educated me, and I, I obviously learned a lot more in working undercover, doing surveillances, wiretaps, and you name it. So uh, on that professional side of it, um, there's no question that uh, the DEA is the best at what it does. And a lot of people really don't get it, courtesy, again, of Hollywood, when I think of DEA, and I've worked with DEA, 
the two things that come to mind are Miami Vice, that's one, and the other one is, is, is Narcos. Well, Narcos is, you know, I, I think Narcos was is definitely more realistic uh, because they had DEA advisors, you know, uh, filming that show. So, um, you know, Miami Vice is, you know, totally off the grid because it's Hollywood at its best. But at least with Narcos, there's some reality in there. Not all of it's reality, but there's some of it that's reality in there. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, the job itself is very dangerous. Uh, no question about it. And, uh, you know, you put sometimes you put yourself in, in positions that, uh, you know, you could be killed. And there's no no question about that because we've had agents, unfortunately, killed yes. in a line of duty. I do remember, uh, I suppose it was other interviews with DEA people. I remember when Kiki Camarena was abducted and missing and then found killed. Uh, and even people like me in, in Baltimore were, were severely affected by that. Yeah, you know, I think, unfortunately, Kiki Camarena's death actually put DEA at the forefront. DEA always took a back seat to a lot of the different agencies, but I think this brought out what we did as an organization because our um, concept then was to maintain low-key, not get out in the public, uh, because there's a lot of times, even when I graduated from the DEA Academy, you know, you tell them, hey, you know, you're a federal agent with DEA, and the first thing they say, well, you're FBI, and we say, no, no, no. We're not FBI. Um, but that was the concept, and, and that was the big misconception. So in today's standards in 2020, back from 1985 when I started, DEA's been all over the map, as it should have been way back when, um, as it is today. So if I tell somebody, hey, I worked with DEA, they know what that means now. But, and it's unfortunate due to his death. And you guys really have a worldwide mission. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, uh, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's close to 70 countries that we're in. You know, at, at one time, uh, DEA wasn't technically considered uh, an intelligence agency, but eventually the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. Uh, finally began to accept the point that DEA was obtaining a lot more information than some of our counterparts overseas uh, because of the access that we had to the local authorities and utilizing their informants. So we had a, uh, and still to this day, have a great reputation overseas as well. There's a definite, and I'm no expert in this, maybe you can shed a little more light. There is a, a definite correlation between narcotics distribution organizations and violence and violent crime and weapons of violence. No doubt about it. I mean, drug trafficking uh, has always been a violent crime. You can just see what goes on in the, in the city of Baltimore. You know, the heroin traffickers in, in the city of Baltimore are one of the most violent groups uh, in the country. And it still exists today uh, as it did way back when. And uh, then when you look at the uh, international side of this, when you're dealing with the Colombian or Mexican cartels, tremendous amount of violence. You know, Colombia at one time controlled, the Colombian traffickers controlled Colombia. Now the government has really changed things. And I think Mexico may be heading in that direction like Colombia once did, uh, where they have to stand up to these narco traffickers 
put them in prisons, and the key is extraditing them to the United States. That's the key. Just like with El Chapo was the latest uh, casualty for the uh, for the drug trafficking cartels. There's also a big correlation with uh, terrorism. That you know, when we go to break, we'll come back. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, I've had guests on who talked about it. They specialize in, in narco-terrorism with the DEA. What I used to say, Larry, was way back in the day, people would say to me, and personally, look, if you want to smoke marijuana or whatever how you consume it, I really don't care. I, I've never really cared. I see what damage a lot of these do to people, but what they didn't realize, and I would say this to them, look, when you buy your nickel bag of marijuana and say, what are, I'm not doing any harm, I'm not hurting anybody, and say, where do you think that $5 goes? Some of it goes to the local dealer, and then it goes to supply. Where do you think the supply comes from? It comes from Central America. And guess what? All those people you see being burned with tires around their necks and, and put in 55-gallon drums and slaughtered in the street, you're putting money in their hands to buy weapons, and you're part of that whole chain. If there wasn't the supply, demand on the American side, there wouldn't be the supply. And it, like you said earlier, it's a very violent game. And a lot of people lose their lives. This is the Law Enforcement Show. We are talking with Larry Forletta. Larry is a former Maryland State Police Trooper and also retired DEA. We come back and we talk more about the DEA experience and his toughest day as a Fed. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you looking for great products that can be game changers for people, for their physical health, for their overall well-being? Go to letpops.com. That's letpops.com. I take these products. They make a world of difference for me. Better energy. I sleep better every night. Full night sleep every night. Zero leg cramps and more. Many people will tell you about the wonderful things that these products do for them. Plus, it can be a phenomenal business opportunity. You can help people improve their lives. And for a very small fee, Get a complete back end, complete website, zero inventory, no shipping, none of that stuff. Get full details on our website, letpops.com. That is letpops.com. Discover the exciting world of podcasts at hefepods.com. From captivating stories to life advice and much more. There's a podcast for every interest and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish. Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language. Find the best podcasts at chefepods.com. This is Law Enforcement Show. I'm John J. Wiley, retired Baltimore City Police Sergeant. And our guest is Larry Ferletta, former Maryland State Police trooper and retired DEA agent, also from the same vicinity, Maryland. Now he's in uh, Pennsylvania. Larry, we're talking about DEA for one third break. A lot of misconceptions people have. One of the questions I pose to my guests all the time, and it, because, quite frankly, we need to start telling our stories because we've relied on the news media to do it, and they do a horrible job. Describe your toughest day or toughest days in the DEA? Well, there's uh, <laughs> there's quite a few of them, and I wouldn't have enough time to give you all of them, so I can narrow it down to some that really kind of stick out in my mind. One of the toughest days for me, uh, personally, 
uh, we were on a uh, just getting ready to execute a search warrant in, uh, in actually in Baltimore County. And traditionally, we you know we always have a ballistic shield. You know, you're pretty well trained uh, in doing entries because, as you know, when you break somebody's door down at six o'clock in the morning, you just don't know what's going to be on the other end. It's extremely dangerous, and you try to develop as much intelligence on the group that you're investigating. And this particular day, um, and it's been tradition, the case agent, who's the lead investigator, usually will be the first one to go through the door with the shield. On this particular case, nobody brought the shield, which I sort of had an objection to it, um, but I looked at it that I wasn't going first through the door. So the two agents that were in charge of the case uh, actually breached the door and so when we entered the door, that makes me the first person to go through the door. And that wasn't supposed to be their role. In any event, uh, they hit the door, and within 10 feet of that door, uh, there was a individual there with uh, had just nodded off. He was guarding that door with a sawed-off shotgun. And we entered it. Uh, we were able to secure him. Fortunately, through my training and experience, I mean... I could have shot him justifiably, uh, but I didn't. We took him in custody. And there were weapons throughout the house. There was a forty-five locked uh, with, the, with the hammer back, actually, facing in our direction. Uh, there were other individuals that were there earlier, but fortunately they left. Uh, we eventually got the, uh, the main person under custody. I mean, he showed up a little later, but uh, we had to disarm him as well. So... You know, after uh, after that particular incident, I, I, I went into their living room and sat down and just realized that 10, 15 minutes ago that I could have lost my life in, in that matter of time, within seconds. And I, I, I broke into a cold sweat. And uh, I went home and uh, I thank God for, uh, and an angel, I guess, watching over me because... Usually when you're executing search warrants and you hit the doors, it's very rare that you hit it one time and it opens. There's numerous blows that you got to give to a door. So that's what happened in that particular case. And so fortunately, you know, nobody uh, got injured or killed and uh, we all went home that day. But that's the danger of uh, the situation. In fact, uh, the traffickers that we were investigating had just been in a shootout uh, with some New York heroin traffickers, and they were concerned that they were coming back after them, which is why they were uh, they were uh, guarding the door and being prepared in case they were attacked. So that was one of the highlights in, in my career, and like I said, there's been many others. I sit uh, down sometimes, Larry, and think there are so many close calls yeah. that could have been either way and i used to think you know well i'm really good at what i do right but there's a lot more to it than that and because a lot of guys i know they're really good at what they do were severely injured or killed so that's not always that's not always a determining factor why you make it through or not and you know i both know that one of the things that people don't realize and it's very much in the conversation nowadays is this term no knock warrant right and they want, there's a certain segment of the population wants police to have to knock all the time and announce themselves. And they don't understand 
the danger just being in front of a door knocking on it puts that law enforcement officer in. Let's just say, for example, it's not a, 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 a drug seizure. It's not a raid. It is answering a call for domestic violence complaint. We just had that happen. And the people on the other side of the door open fire. Right. Uh, it's a deadly funnel. It's a bad spot to be in. And what I say with the, the no-knock is we always had to have a uniform with us going mm-hmm. in first or second. Right. And we announced our presence very, very loudly. Sure. Uh, so it's not like it was a... T- but it was done for officer safety reasons. What would you say to people who are strong advocates of getting rid of the no-knock warrants? Well, well, in the federal system, you have to get a order through the courts who have to approve a no-knock warrant. So the majority of search warrants in the federal system um, are knock and announce warrants. However, if you determine that there's extreme danger, then you would apply through the, with the federal prosecutor's U.S. attorney's office to get a no-knock warrant. We very rarely did uh, no-knock warrants in, uh, in DEA. Now, in the Maryland State Police, we just hit the door and went in, um, which was a lot different concept. Um, so the, the problem is with a, 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 a knock-and-announce warrant, you're telling the bad guys you're coming in. I mean, I've never, in all my years, ever felt comfortable like that because once you broke that door open and you're in that funnel, then that's where the dangers exist. And, of course, you're yelling, you know, police, federal agents. It goes on and on and on. Uh, and you have, you know, you have the proper raid jackets, ballistic vest, and everything else that goes with a raid. So I, I think you have to look at no-knocks on a case-by-case basis, uh, from my perspective. And it also depends on the type of crime and the evidence you're searching yes. for. Yes, People absolutely. always say this. You know, in police work, I, I rarely ever had a chance to get scared until afterwards. When I say yes. scared, I'm talking about fear where adrenaline kicks in and everything goes beyond that the cold sweat the things we talked about the right. exceptions were like when we had a call there was one guy in our district who whenever he got off his medication he was the size of a football player he would fight everybody and we knew it'd be ugly and i would yeah. pray i would pray go on there the other one is when we're going to do drug raids especially drug raids in the projects mm-hmm. because we yeah. just knew it was going the potential for bad stuff happening was so great that you were like, every nerve is on fire just driving there. Well, of course, and, and you know, in, in West Baltimore, with a lot of the traffickers, uh, they had steel doors. They had reinforced doors. Uh, they had all kind of uh, cameras, alerts. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the drug traffickers were very well prepared in, in a lot of cases. And they had their dogs in there, um, you know, pit bulls, which is the standard uh, drug dog, I'll call it. But yeah, it, it's you know, whatever, however you look at it, it's dangerous. That's at, at, at the end of the day, it is dangerous. So what you're doing now is a little bit tamer. Oh yeah, it's uh, what what, what would I call it? Apples and oranges. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like Hollywood. You're a private investigator. Uh, right. Before we run out of time, uh, tell people what you do and where they can get more information. Well, we do uh, a variety of uh, investigations. You know, from child custody matters to uh, some defense, uh, criminal defense work we do, missing persons case. Uh, I did a big missing persons case called the Dakota James in Pittsburgh. And that was featured on the Oxygen Network. It was called the Smiley Face Killers. I worked with a group of uh, retired NYPD homicide detectives who 
develop this profile. So it was a very interesting case, and it's still going on as we speak, but we've never solved that case, uh, which is uh, very disheartening at times uh, because I spent about 40 days with the family going over this, and it was just you know, challenging and, and a lot of agony and, and uh, despair from the family. And that was one I was hoping that we would be able to solve. Well, just didn't happen that way. We'll have to have you back to talk about that one in more detail. Uh, what is your website for people to look you up? It's www.fcisllc.com. Larry Folletta, thanks so much for being a guest on Law Enforcement. Very much appreciated. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.